Hello and welcome to This Is Fine, a podcast about engineering brought to you by CodeOwners.com. I'm Brandon, your host and one of the founders. Join me as we interview founders and leaders in technology and discuss topics ranging from bringing dev tools to market to scaling infrastructure and so much more. Thank you for joining us. We're happy you're here. Well, good morning from me, Alex. Good afternoon to you. Uh, you're on the East Coast. I'm out here in the Pacific. I am really excited to be able to hang out with you. Uh, so myself, for those listening uh, or watching, depending on where you're consuming this podcast, uh, I'm Brandon. I'm the CEO of Codex. Uh, we're the creators of CodeOwners.com, uh, a product that helps you basically manage code ownership across your system and a developing platform for the automation around that, including routing errors and all sorts of fun stuff. Uh, but very excited to be joined with Alex uh, from Sherpa. Uh, Alex, if you want to introduce yourself, that'd be great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Um, hi, everyone. My name is Alex. I'm I'm leading the engineering team here at Sherpa. I joined uh, close to four years ago as the first engineer. Max and I were the two co-founders, close to seed round. I came in, I think, number seven on the team and now leading uh, a large engineering team of um, just about 20 engineers and um, grown as a kind of travel tech focused startup um, throughout the past years with uh, all the challenges that come around with that. And um, our core business is really providing uh, travel visas as an auxiliary service to airlines. And that really specifically means that if you're booking your flight, if you're booking your travel with um, kind of any platform, then you can apply on the spot with the right travel documentation. And we help facilitate that with the respective government um, so that you can uh, move freely and don't have to worry about uh, crossing borders. It's it's impressive because temporally, as you mentioned, it is now the end of 2022, but this business started pre-pandemic, I think? Yes, um, I think depending on who you ask, the roots go uh, several years um, back even before that. In um, kind of good startup manier, there's like lots of iterations, validations, identifying uh, what problems we're trying to solve. And um, when I joined in, in like the uh, 2019 era, um, we're kind of like just piloting with, with some of our partners and uh, getting kind of our, our product really launched. And that was kind of the phase where like, oh, something is really working and now we need to build a team and actually um, get that really to the market. And um, just as we had uh, actually a really successful uh, pilot with one of our larger clients and saw trajectory, the classic hockey J curve, uh, we got really excited. Things started to break. We had to like call in everyone and, and kind of like uh, really identify and, and help resolve some of those bottlenecks, but it was working. And um, all of a sudden, all airplanes were grounded. And um, for us, that's kind of the, the biggest part. If, if people travel, they need visas. If they don't travel, they don't need visas. And um, for us, that was just like a very pivotal moment to understand, uh, A, what is going on in the world right now? And also, B, um, what can we do to help? And um, visas are probably not the biggest spot in that very moment, but there's tons of requirements that you need to fulfill. So understanding that space um, in a really detailed, uh, complete, coherent way and uh, keeping it up to date and um, adaptive to like the changing environment was extremely relevant to us. And through that, we kind of leveraged our partnerships. We formed new partnerships and um, established ourselves as kind of the leading business in that travel requirement space. And now as travel is picking up, um, we can kind of leverage that to really provide back to the core, back to the roots, uh, what we kind of originally for um, travel visas as an auxiliary service to airlines. So cool. It must have been quite the ride to go through those changes as uh, obviously airliners were grounded, as you mentioned, and things like that. As the leader, 
during that time? Like, how was that for you and the team and like running the engineering org, like managing something as impactful as like that level of change? It went through so many phases um, because just when when everything started, uh, we were like a team of like 17 and mentally we were like preparing for, okay, what does growth in that year look like for us? Uh, what does it mean to then maybe grow the team, uh, build out like uh, additional kind of capacities, iterate for our like products? But then everything came to like a standing still and we we really didn't know what was happening and why. And so did no one else in the world. So everyone was just like watching and and kind of like taking in what was happening and um, taking then action and actually providing value through that uncertainty helped us to just get closer as a team. Um, we kind of retained our team size. Growth was not a priority, but uh, providing value was. And um, through that, uh, we really kind of established a very round process of discovering what we need to build in order to provide value, um, build out close relationships with our partners. We had dedicated Slack integrations. We had weekly meetings. Um, we tried to really identify what are the pain points, what are the things that hurt the most, and what are time wasters, and how can we turn into a time saver and provide added value as a customer experience for travelers? And um, through that, we're able to um, kind of leverage our current existing system in the best possible way, build on top of that and keep iterating. And um, the world started to change, um, kind of like entry requirements where you can't go turned into, you can go, but you need to get tested. But, oh, make sure you quarantine. But, oh, if you're like vaccinated, you don't have to quarantine as long. Oh, but if you vaccinated twice or have a booster, then you don't need to get tested or vaccinated. And um, there's like so many combinations around the globe that uh, were very complex. And we were able to digest that in a very simple manner and contextualize that, knowing that who you are as a traveler and what is your itinerary and based on that provide really detailed overviews of here's everything you need to know and um, helping to facilitate that for us um, that was kind of like then the, the moment where um, we needed to get together work very effectively and establish kind of new products and um, do that as quick as possible but also understand the audience that we're building out and the responsibility that would come with that because now we had an API and solutions that were utilized that uh, saw traffic. Um, I think during the, kind of our initial pilot, we had 200,000 API requests a month, and it grew into now um, around like close to 20 million a day. And, um, and that was kind of uh, just like a complete different scale. And now if you release new features and functionalities, we need to ensure that uh, we have no downtime, that um, we kind of have that continuity in place. At the very beginning, just deploy it, see what happens. And then if it works, it works. Um, but initially, um, we didn't really put as much focus on it as we're doing it today. So that was like in the last couple of years, like a big shift towards um, really establishing boundaries between teams, but also um, helping with a lot of the resilience and uh, putting in a development process that is more predictable. Yeah. So in some ways, this might be a, a weird question, but the fact that the the impact of obviously the pandemic hitting and altering things, getting your team to pivot and start saying, okay, there's actually these, I'm going to call them business rules, but they're like government rules. Like you can't 
come to the country for XYZ reason, unless, as you mentioned, vaccination or whatever, like these protocols, essentially, that each government was sort of releasing. It was very different. The fact that that occurred when your team was like building the system design, do you think that the architecture that you put in place in order to ingest this like business rules or logic into a system that was as distributed as yours helped prepare you for 20 million API requests a day? Because that's pretty crazy to think about. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, A bit of both. And um, one thing that we guarded against was uncertainty. And we just didn't know what data we need. So in order to prepare for that, we took a couple like analogies from like different markets, like uh, insurance, for instance. There's like a set of policies that need to be applied to. There's kind of like rules that are kind of like qualifying, quantifying attributes, like classifiers. And um, depending on a context, classifiers are applied or not. And then you look at an aggregation and then kind of like navigate that tree of applicable policies and you comment to like an end result, like an aggregation of them. So in our data structure, we took a very similar approach where we started to articulate these restrictions as policies. So here's a policy that applies for travelers going from one destination to um, another one. And um, here are kind of the rules that apply. And uh, here are the qualifiers we account for. And then the second mindset was uh, we really wanted to put travelers into the focus to be understandable. Those are like extremely complex. The language around it is very formal, sometimes even contradicting. Um, We had to reach out several times to like governments and embassies to just like clarify, what do you mean by this? Is it actually this case or this case? And sometimes like, actually, no, that's both wrong. The way we live it and practice it is this way. And um, it was like very, very interesting kind of experiences because it was changing so fast. And sometimes like entities, airlines or governments wouldn't even know. Um, So having that as accurate and clear as possible was a big goal for us. And um, the kind of inspiration we took was just on blog posts, having a simple title, having a description, an abstract, and uh, making it kind of very user-friendly, having like a tagging system in place that allows us to be a little bit more flexible with like our data structures, helped to prepare us for that uncertainty of here's information, but we need to like organize and structure that in, in multiple ways. And we kept it very flexible. And um, the scaling part uh, on an infrastructure level was really leveraging the cloud. We're putting like a big bet on um, utilizing a lot of the managed services on Google Cloud Platform specifically to not burden ourselves with dedicated infrastructure challenges. Those are fundamentally different, and we're relying on kind of the power of the cloud to really scale out very flexible. And that helped us to essentially go from like those 200,000 to like 20 million uh, with very, very little effort. That's, I mean, fascinating, to be honest. That must have been, I'm sure while you were living it, a bit stressful. <laughs> but now that you're on the other side of it, uh, it's, it's really cool to see how you, like I'd say there's elegance in that system, like looking at comparables. Obviously, insurance is a really cool place to look. I didn't think about that, like policy as, uh, almost policy as code. Uh, it's very, very, very interesting. Another part that you brought up while we were chatting is that you looked at the team and you started to sort of say, okay, well, where's the domain separation for like the team and like what they're responsible for? Um, Can you just elaborate a bit more on what you mean by like the domain separation? Was it like service uh, level kind of or service level ownership is the term I'm looking for, but... Uh, A bit yes and no. Um, For us, we put kind of product into a very strong focus in everything we do and uh, trying to make it as usable as possible um, with kind of technical excellence, as I like to call it. 
And um, during those times, we were like hyper focused on that entire suite of like travel requirements, which was kind of front ends as well as kind of the back end parts, plug and play solutions. But um, once the world started to change um, to the better and uh, travel starts like really be picked up again. And everyone was very eager to like get now traveling because um, it was like suppressed for so long. We started to like shift and, and organize ourselves. We grew the team and um, we put different focus areas in place where, um, of course, kind of like all the travel requirements needed to be like maintained and are still very actively maintained today with even more enhanced information than we had before. Um, on the other side, connect kind of like all the aspects of, of the visa part, as well as the automation that happens behind the scenes, kind of like the, the, the magic behind the scenes, the things that you don't see, but they're happening and are part of the, the user experience, um, start to just become more relevant. And um, the more we start to put focus on that, the bigger the teams around that grew and the more articulate we needed to be on, like, what is the purpose of that team? Where's the focus area? What are parts of the system that they touch and where do they collaborate between other teams? Um, so I took um, a lot of inspiration from uh, a book called Team Topologies and um, how they articulate uh, teams, their, their ownerships, but also the communication between those. And um, of course, at the very beginning, we had a high degree of collaboration between teams. And then step by step, we're trying to dismantle that and turning those kind of collaboration areas into um, service functions, and then trying to leverage enabling teams um, to help transition from like one domain to the other. And um, those could be like service layers, like dedicated APIs that are shared, front end applications that then kind of need to access those um, information layers. And uh, we're still on a journey to get there. There's still a lot of dependencies. There's a lot of like tight coupling between teams and some of the solutions um, because the way we approached it was really to optimize for velocity. And um, that just is accounting for accumulating tech debt. But I, I don't like the term tech debt as much as I like tech wealth. And for us, it was just a series of trade-offs that we consciously made in order to gain certain effects and benefits. And now we're trying to convert that into understanding a particular part of our system that has now changed requirements because things evolved and things needed to be flexible. But now we understand better what that flexibility actually looks like and needs to be. So now we can actually iterate on those service layers and harden them out by putting more stable contracts in place. And then also understand what is the responsibility of a certain uh, domain layer, let's say uh, our products, for instance. Um, And uh, how does it need to guard against being just mudded with with additional requirements or a break between other domain entities that might be related to it, but actually are not really part of that. A very tangible example in that is within our travel requirement policies, we're now feeding in some of our product details where um, you can actually see some of the pricing information or some of the details around uh, what kind of visas would be applicable for you. And that really is two separate boundaries that are now kind of linked together but they're still kind of like very hardened where we have a products API that only facilitates product information, a requirements API that's responsible for travel requirements. And they're kind of linked together because they have a relationship, but they consume each other. 
think those are like the important aspects where um, it becomes much more clear where we need to put these boundaries in place and then how we do them and uh, ensure that we still have kind of that modularity, but also independence on teams to iterate and uh, keep innovating on those product areas. Yeah, that, that's that's really cool. It seems like you're weaving the notion of domain level ownership, service level ownership, and now possibly thinking out like, are you using um, tools potentially like Datadog Service Catalog or uh, Spotify released a tool called Backstage that's open source to like try to define like what is a service and which team owns it? And when I think about this from our level, like at like the leadership level, it's kind of like somebody owns the SLA. So it's like, if it goes down, it's like, which team do we call? Because obviously, as you just said, like you literally have APIs consuming each other, which makes things weird. <laughs> so how do you think about this <laughs> as you form this uh, new, we're trying to draw the boundaries? It's very hard to do it in a human system. So with respect. Interesting question, because um, it comes with its own set of challenges. And there's kind of the tooling part. There's kind of the infrastructure area. We leverage, as mentioned, a lot of like Google Cloud infrastructure. And um, there are capabilities with incident management, SLAs, uptime checks, and kind of our alerting and monitoring that we try to leverage and utilize and um, link that into kind of our Slack groups and get people pinged if something around a service that they own is, is kind of affected. But a big part of that is um, one of the strategic technical decisions that we made uh, a couple of years ago to move into a monorepo uh, kind of approach, consolidating our many repositories with backend, frontend code into a single repository. Uh, technically, we actually have a few, but um, there's like focus areas and like kind of specific domains that we kind of keep a little bit more separated for effectiveness. And moving a lot of the front-end code and the back-end code that those front-end elements are consuming into the same code base helps us to gain a lot of perspective. And um, articulating exactly which team owns which part, kind of applications, shared libraries. We're using the uh, NX build system, which helps us to also define in-code boundaries between systems. So applications can only import certain libraries. Libraries uh, can only be imported by other set of libraries if they are have like a dedicated relationship. Um, there might be shared libraries that are specific to a tech stack, like uh, we use Nest.js on the back end. We have shared libraries that are built for consumption in Nest.js applications. But we also have tooling that is very agnostic, um, kind of the typical uh, utility functions that you just like rewrite every single time just to realize there's like an underscore lib that you could just import it. Um, but those type, type of things that just like naturally happen. And um, the tooling that we have helps us with enforcing those boundaries. And if they're violated, then our linting and, um, and kind of quality checks are alerting us and helping us to uh, identify, hey, here's something that you actually should not be doing. Yeah. And as part of that, like it, it sounds like, I mean, this is a great level of architecture, first of all. So con congrats <laughs> at your size. Uh, hearing about the usage of NX is like pretty rare that I hear, but it seems like an incredibly powerful tool set. But like as you do this, like when people are basically in the let's think the standard, you've got a great engineer working on their local and they're going to push something up to this. Like how do they interact with the system? Is it through the PR flow? And a lot of this is now just structured and it's automation. Like if you could help uh, you know, the listeners walk through this a bit. Yeah, there's like tons of improvements that we still need to do. Um, there is not the level of maturity that we'd love to see, but also sometimes just not needed. So like pragmatism is, is kind of a key word. 
um, when we uh, work on features, um, the main mindsets that I try to like really focus on is um, leveraging a trunk-based approach as a development or like um, branching strategy. And that really just means you have one long-lived branch called the main branch, and every functionality feature fix is worked on a feature branch. And um, whenever um, code completion, code changes are being made, we often encourage to just open up a pull request in draft mode. What it does, though, is that every commit that is happening on that branch actually runs in the cloud through the CI/CD integration with the lint checks, build checks, and um, actually preview links. For our front-end applications, we generate automatically throughout the CI/CD pipeline preview links that uh, can be shared with other team members, let's say designers or like uh, product owners to just take a stop and say, like, hey, the first version, I kind of created this little interaction. Um, can you just have a look? Is this getting into the right direction? How does it feel? And um, that helps us a lot to um, just iterate faster and more effectively. Backend is often still a challenge just because there are more integration aspects of that. Um, but on the front end, we have a really good handle on that. And then once we essentially merge our changes, the CI-CD integration really just deploys automatically into our lowest environment called staging. And um, it's it's ready for like some development QA. And then once that, um, that goes through, we promote. And the important part is that uh, the artifacts that are being promoted are built once. Once we did the merge into the main branch, artifacts are generated. So for like front applications, it might be just static file assets that are zipped together or um, backend services that are containerized. It's really just a Docker image with the respective tags. And as code changes are being promoted into like the higher environments up to production, it's exactly the same code artifacts with maybe some configuration changes that are promoted and staged up into the environments. And that helps us to um, get much more granularity and confidence in the changes that we made um, that are being uh, rolled out successfully. Thank you for that. And also nice. <laughs> um, in this flow, like how, how does your team handle like the PR reviews? Just like in a s- simplest of ways, are they grabbing it like broadly? Is it like the team looking at it? Is, is it a code owner or someone with domain knowledge, et cetera, et cetera? Um, it's a bit blurred. That's just the reality. Um, we try to articulate team ownerships around solutions, like a particular front application is owned by one team, uh, another backend is owned by like maybe another team, and there are kind of like uh, cross dependencies around that. Um, a big contribution to that was um, to actually specify that in a code owner's file that is revisioned in um, the repository directly. And uh, with that, pull requests that are in an affected kind of folder path structure are then suggested as requesters um, when a pull request is open up. Um, so that often just helps to understand that someone that did make changes uh, before in a certain area and is articulated hard, like specific, specifically as a code owner, um, is then being pulled in. So that means that the actual true owners, the maintainers of a certain slice of functionality, kind of a code base, are um, in control and in charge. So if someone that might be coming from like a different team, uh, we have, for instance, um, our design system team that we established a few months ago, and now they're helping us with integrating some of the amazing components that they built first in isolation, but now we're like in the adoption phase. So they're actually opening up pull requests like, hey, I replaced all the buttons in your application and I did all the work for you. 
So now someone needs that actually owns and understands the application to kind of code review that to make sure that there is maybe something that uh, might have been like a one-off also covered or edge cases that, that are hard to automate because for certain technical limitations, we had to kind of like, um, go through that. It's working pretty well. Where it starts to break is if there's just not clear boundaries between teams or just resource constraints. Some teams just have a handful of developers with, um, let's say, two front-end engineers um, that are like in one team. Uh, so who are you going to pick if you have to choose two? Well, it's always going to be those two. Um, and and that's just a little bit of like continuity. And then sometimes it can get like a little blurred where you pull in folks that might not be the domain experts, but are really good at TypeScript. And that was like a very difficult um, kind of co-change that we made that requires a little bit more review because it's doing a lot of like interesting things that we haven't done before. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, those situations will always arise or heck someone just might be on vacation so it's like how do you you know make sure just it just happens i super appreciate it thank you so much for walking us through this system it's it's very cool and i i like how this gives me the chance to kind of lead it into the next scene is before we started recording you mentioned that you started onboarding some more of your team so when i think about you know you're growing you're you're onboarding new engineers how like i'm going to start with the most basic of questions but like how do you get them up to speed and into the team basically at Sherpa, like with all this complexity you're talking about, it sounds like the actual act of being an engineer, your, your developer experience is quite strong because a lot of this sounds like great automation. It's there for them. It's running with your, your cloud infrastructure and so on. But what happens? I'm, I'm now Brandon, day one engineer at Sherpa. <laughs> Help me out, Alex. Yeah, you've been welcomed by the engineering manager, kind of like um, who will be who will be direct reporting to. Uh, I usually jump into like those calls just to say hi and and see some familiar faces, um, and um, we guide new developers through like a structured onboarding approach. Uh, we leverage knowledge, Notion as our like knowledge based system, and um, we have dedicated templates that outline um, everything behind the scenes around uh, who are we at Sherpa, what do we do, what are our department structures, what are our rituals, what are like our common behaviors, and who are we as an organization. There's tons of content. What are our guiding lights? Um, so that really just helps with aligning what is our mission, why do we exist, and what part do you play in that kind of bigger picture? Um, and that gets like very quickly, very tangible into the first day, second day, and first week kind of like tasks. And we call them achievements um, to make it a little bit more um, success driven. And um, they're typically split just through our remote nature into synchronous and asynchronous work. It can get extremely overwhelming. There's a lot of things to read. Um, so we try to provide a lot of guidance on um, how to navigate some of our knowledge base get all the access to our systems and um, and then start like checking out their first repositories and uh, being part of the team. So we try to integrate new developers directly into the teams that we're working with. And that just might happen like one of our latest developers, I think on his day when he joined, he jumped right into a retro. And um, and that was amazing. Um, there's probably little that you can contribute in that retro, but you get to see all the team members, you get to like identify, oh, here are some of the things that they struggle with and you can contribute to ideas or just ask questions. Well, like, have you tried this? What about that? 
and uh, it really drives a lot of the curiosity. There's few areas that we're trying to solve within the first kind of week, uh, which is a the knowledge of our system, of our environments. What are our APIs? What are our front applications? How does everything work? And solve some of the aspects of technology. We deliberately um, have chosen TypeScript as our primary language. It's very adaptive. It's very applicable. It works beautifully on the front end um, and great on the back end as well. So there's like less context switching, but we use a lot of like tools that um, people might have been working with or not, like NX as a build system. There's uh, different mindsets and concepts. What is an application? What is a library? How do I just run an application, a monorepo? How do I work with that? And what are some of those amazing tools that come with it? Same with um, how does it integrate into our infrastructure? We use Google Cloud. A lot of folks might come from like AWS and have like a comparable, but no kind of a lot of experience with that. And um, how do you just deploy a cloud function? How do you run it? How do you test it? Um, so we try to like, navigate and help hands-on as much as possible within the context of the team and uh, achieve some of the quick wins. Um, ideally, we are striving for having a first meaningful uh, contribution to the code base within the first week or two. And um, that can be just like a small bug fix. Um, but one of the first things that, that we often do is uh, just open up a PR add yourself to a code owner file and go through the process of opening up a PR, getting it reviewed, making a code change and seeing what it actually does and how it behaves. Um, it's, it's kind of like a very small quick win, but it has a lot of meaning for individuals to get very quickly to the stage of, I can make code changes and I get them merged. And this is kind of how the process works out. Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. That that sounds great. I, I laughed a few times in there, but I was on mute trying to make sure that I don't interrupt you. But <laughs> there's some good, like good, good fixes. Uh, I, I appreciate that a lot. Um, how do you like I mean, I, I like that. But like, how do you instill the sense of like speed? Or is there something else that's more important right now at Sherpa at your stage? Like, is it is it not just like I'm thinking like this classic Dora metrics, you know? let's get it out, like, you know, time to release all that good stuff. Um, but like, is like, what is that key focus? Probably a better question. What is the key focus? Is it speed right now? Is it actually elegance or, you know, maintaining an SLA? Like, what's the focus for like these new team members as they get on? There's a really cool mantra that we just adopted and uh, what I kind of brought more into like awareness, which is go slow to go fast. And um, the expectations for like a new team member specifically are really to get familiar with everything we do and our rituals and habits and the code base that you'll be working with as quickly as possible. So I'm not optimizing for um, fix at least that many bugs or um, uh, contribute to like larger feature sets. The first two, three weeks, you might just be shadowing people. You might be pair programming. You might be actually sitting in a customer success call and actually see how we talk and interact with our partners. Um, you might be shadowing for two hours our operations team and see what challenges that they face when they actually interact with our travelers and help troubleshoot them. Um, you get a sense of like, what are all the tools that we kind of have and provide? You might apply for a few visas on your own and just like go through the experience. It's often like one of those um, things where a lot of engineers come from various backgrounds, travel with different nationalities and, and passports, different experiences when it comes to like crossing borders. And some might be familiar with a lot of like the pain points that travelers have, which makes them so passionate about like um, helping to solve for those problems. And um, some are like, oh, you really have to do that? Like, what does it actually look like? 
and um, getting that as an experience and uh, building out the empathy of what are the things that we solve for and why do they matter is much more relevant in like the first initial days than um, providing a lot of like um, fixes or contributions. Because chances are that you're touching a part of the system that hasn't been touched in a while and um, might be very oblivious on what it actually does or what side effects and dependencies it might have. And something that looks very innocent can bubble up very quickly because that's just kind of like a, a code base that we had built a while back. And that is just kind of like reality. And, um, and that often helps to get the necessary context to then actually build things in the right way and do that very collaborative with other team members that have uh, a bit more experience and can, um, you can learn from. Yeah, it's it's really cool because, I mean, you could you have a, a team obviously building solutions for your partners and everything like that. But like it's kind of like there's like these stations. But at the end of the day, there's a person like me getting my visa to like go to India. So it's very interesting to kind of teach your team this. It's like it's not just that we're building these tools that, you know, our partners like an airliner might be using. So how do you help them understand that there's like all these parties that are involved in using Sherpa. 100% and folds back into like the ownership aspect. Like we talked about like building out boundaries and creating like service functions. Guess what? End to end, it, it like that needs to matter most. So even though we, we try to provide more context around uh, ownership and responsibilities for teams to gain velocity and, uh, and benefits on that and effectiveness, at the end of the day, if there's something one team can do to help another team to build a solution fully end to end, then that should not build out a boundary or limitation around that to turn into like, oh, this is not our, our kind of area. That's something that the other team needs to solve. Uh, we're solving it for like the traveler and we're trying to do that in a kind of very coherent end to end way as much as possible while maintaining kind of our focus areas around um, just code bases that we have an expertise in. It's very blurry. I mean, hey, <laughs> right. It wouldn't be as hard a job, I guess, if there weren't blurred lines all over the place. That's that's really fun. I'm I, Again, in our preamble, when we were just hanging out before we recorded, uh, you mentioned that um, you're doing a bit of hiring and that you're you're going to go out and try to like help because I mean, currently in this market, uh, unfortunately, uh, but fortunately for some people, there are a lot of great engineers now uh, looking to go to their next place. Um, and through your hiring experience, like how would you advise, just because I have this opportunity and I think you're a great leader for this, how would you advise that these individuals, uh, you know, help give themselves the best leg up to get the role or their dream job that they're now looking for potentially? Oh, that's such an amazing question. For me, the biggest factors is just curiosity. Um we're like very different in, in our hiring process as I don't put a lot of effort and, and regiment um, parts on like the hard skills. I take that as a kind of like a base requirement. Like you need to be a great developer. You need to understand a basic context of uh, design patterns and uh, just contribute in a meaningful way. And, and that's, that's just kind of a baseline where I do draw a lot of like distinction and there's lots of talks around like a product engineer being product-minded. Um, but I think to me, it really draws into like curiosity. Uh, what are you like passionate about? Are you solving it because it's a requirement that someone told you? Or are you trying to like really make a difference and, and do that in, in the most elegant way that you can find? And sometimes elegance comes from like technical elegance where something just works really efficient. Um, something is, is very abstracted away and generalized so it retains its flexibility. 
Uh, but sometimes it's really just the experience that you're creating and um, leveraging kind of like some of the cloud infrastructure. Um, we had recently a lot of projects where we're switching into leveraging Google Cloud workflows. And that is kind of like abstracting away, taking effort um, into our hands to focus on something that has more meaning and abstracting it away and leveraging an infrastructure part to do the hard work. And um, when it comes down to hiring and interviewing, um, I just often don't see that curiosity or like that, that light for building something that has some form of meaning. And everyone, like especially like individual contributors, including myself, just love building stuff and, and are proud of like all the things that, that they built, even though they might be the only user um, on a particular thing. But um, let that shine through and, and um, really show that you're passionate about a specific tech stack. We work with Angular and Angular as an amazing framework and tool, but market is telling every developer, learn React because that's where you get a job. I don't care. Like if you look at the website and um, have a great experience, no one will say, oh my God, that was the best React app I've ever interacted. People don't know and people don't care. Um, so we're trying to like foster that mindset of being agnostic and, and being passionate. And if you're passionate about like a particular tech stack, then let that shine through and just like, oh man, I really love working with React because it has these amazing features and allows me to do X, Y, and Z. And oh, look at the latest release notes. And here's a few things that I'm really excited about. And that shows me much more um, detail on uh, where someone is and how they kind of operate and think. And um, if those qualities kind of are present, combined with just kind of a baseline of hard skills, um, I see those individuals just thrive in, in the environment they were creating um, because it really channels their kind of like inner, um, inner um, just desires to like just build great things and doing that with a lot of freedom, um, but also focus. Yeah, I, I, I agree deeply. That is excellent advice. Um, a piece from me that always surprised me uh, when we were hiring is just when I would ask the simple question of, you know, why did you apply to work here? Like, what is it about our business? And the fact that you have, like reference curiosity being important. I was always shocked when someone was like, I can just do the job. And I'm like, do you just not care about what we do? <laughs> like it was, it was a, uh, so I guess my piece of advice is listen to Alex, please, everybody be curious, care <laughs> like about what you're doing. Be impassioned about that. I mean, it's the technical stack, of course, but also just the space. Um, so it's cool that you mentioned, obviously, a lot of sounds like a lot of your team like to travel. This is probably a component of what makes your <laughs> an exciting place for them. Um, yeah. If there's any other points you might want to make on that, please. Being pragmatic and and preparation um, were kind of specific to a question like tips for people going maybe through like a, kind of like a hiring phase, interviewing a lot. And um, where I see interesting challenges is that people are just not prepared. Um, and that goes around, who are you applying for, coming to your question? Um, everything is public. Like what we do, what we solve for, even like our kind of clients are very public around that. And our core values, who we are as an organization, um, spending like at least like a minimum to dive into that and identify what are the things that they do. But then... Um, being inquisitive, kind of back to the curiosity, um, what are the challenges that they might be facing? And there's so much you can like interpret and assume just going through some of the solutions that we built, the use cases we solve for, and then you're an engineer. 
So how would you build that? How would you organize that? What, what's the architecture you would kind of solve this for? And what are some of the challenges you might be running into? If you read in between the lines of, of job descriptions, you often find like notes around scalable, uh, great user experience. But like, what does that really mean? And how do you translate that back? And what are some of the challenges? And then echoing those back as your assumptions into like, hey, I have a few questions. Actually, I see you're doing this thing and you work a lot with like us, like plug and play solutions, like embedded um, elements that are like iframes sitting on like different websites. How, how do you manage that? Like I saw that they're like, they're like adaptive and they, they do things automatically. How does it work? And um, what are some of the challenges you face being like that and not having your own site. And then there's like a plateau of technical and business challenges they can talk about that make it very exciting and interesting. And, and those are factors as individuals that then often stand out because A, they're curious, but also they, they try to, I get the assumption that they understand what we're doing and that they're up for solving those challenges. So I'm getting much more excited about an individual that asks those type of questions that did a little bit of like preparation and is aligned around, um, oh yeah, that's actually a challenge I'm working right now. And have you thought about like solving these? And now I can change the conversation into problem solving. And that gives me like a really good understanding of how someone thinks about a particular problem and what assumptions they make. And um, if that kind of 10 minute conversation turns out great, this is a strong hire to me. Yeah, we, we have the same thing here. Like obviously when we work on code ownership, it's like having some level of understanding what that means. Uh, we've spoken to people who had just never even heard of a code owner's file. And there's those moments where you're like, that's a little hard. <laughs> it's like it's, it's in the name a bit. So uh, yeah, like definitely being curious. And, and I totally agree with you when someone takes you from like, because obviously, I mean, you need to start at the top. I get that. Like, it's like, what are we doing? Who are we delivering for? What's the business? Where's the value? Like these broad questions. But someone who can then start to bring that deeper and deeper into like where the, the really gnarly parts are, that's where you're like, yes, because like that's the person you want working on a system. Like it's it's hard. Like when you really start to put it together, as you mentioned, you know, embeds across the Internet, especially if they're iframes. Sounds like tricky business to me. But it's fun, but it comes with its own challenges. Quick tip um, that I can give people along the way is um, prepare your pitch. Um, connect a one, three, nine minute pitch. Can you introduce yourself in one minute, in three minutes, and in nine minutes? And um, if you can do that successfully, rehearse that and, and be ready. You might be running into someone on the street. You just do like a occasional kind of like, oh, this is what I do. This is who I am. And um, guess what? In an interview, one of the first questions asked is, how are you? And tell me more about yourself. And uh, that is just like guaranteed that it will happen. And rehearse that and, and make sure that the first couple minutes, the first impression, um, that that is really nailed. And I see a lot of folks struggling now in vast explanations, going way too much into details on projects that they worked on. I don't have the cognitive load and capacity to uh, kind of understand and memorize everything. I look at the resume, I see a couple of kind of highlights and uh, telling a story about yourself is often much harder than you think. And um, having that rehearsed and able to like keep it short, also elaborate more if needed, is is I think a, a really good tool that you should always keep in your toolbox. Yeah, those are excellent tips because you're so great at helping out the the IC or the individuals who are are looking. I I'd love to switch this to also you're in my opinion uh, an excellent engineering leader. So from the leadership side, 
if it's all right with you, I want to ask a few questions around how you think about leadership and leading teams. Yeah. And now you're also leading teams of teams and all these other fun things. So I guess the first one is like, this is kind of unfair because it's very broad and not specific, but like, do you have any like keys to, and I'm thinking specifically engineering leadership right now, but feel free to expand that scope if you'd like, but do you have any keys to like leadership and like how you should think about growing a team, especially as this, I mean, as teams scale and scale, like there's no way you could know every little thing about every little thing. So any specific ones that you're like, yeah, this, this has really helped me over my course of my career? Um, I think I'm still figuring that out, to be very honest. But what I can uh, share very comfortably and confidently is um, kind of the approach that I took. And when um, we grew to like a team size where I think I was managing nine individuals, nine or 10 individuals, um, I was like, I need an engineering manager. <laughs> I need to do something. I, I can't keep up anymore. And, um, and the big focus that I tried to create within those kind of first four months, I did like a dedicated kind of onboarding plan for four months um, with my kind of first engineering manager. And um, that really entailed building out trust in, um, in the individual, but more so building out trust for the individual, for the teams, people that are being managed, and within like the rest of the leadership teams. And um, that only helped through like delegation and kind of strong collaboration where I put a lot of emphasis was on alignment and uh, making sure that there's a lot of context on what decisions did we make in the past, what was the mindset and what were like the context around those decisions and where is it going towards to my people are if you don't really know where it's going to but here's a hunch and and this is where i would like to take it and um something that helped a lot was um creating like a common language and uh kind of like a baseline it's like the first uh first year of university where you have to go for like all these like math classes and um day by day it just gets gradually more extreme um and and um the approach i took was um there's a few books that I always recommend to read and uh, there's team topologies to understand how like team dynamics work and how we want to shape teams because we take a lot of analogy around that and uh, an elegant puzzle. And that's like more focused on engineering management and really outlining some of the strategies, thought principles, but also putting a little bit of math behind that. If you onboard someone, you're actually reducing capacity on existing engineers because guess what? They help onboard someone else. So they have less time to do things. And more people doesn't equate to like more output. Sometimes it's the inverse because there's an additional overhead on communication, alignment, and context that is needed. Um, so those were like the biggest parts that I tried to focus on and then enable as much as possible by kind of removing myself out of the context and very actively just not being part of meetings or um, just turning my camera off, being on mute and providing kind of like help and guidance and asking more questions than providing answers and um, establishing new generation of, of leaders within our organization um, and help them to, to be really standing out in that area. But that, that was the approach that I took. And, and I think it, it worked so far, not too shabby. <laughs> yeah, pretty good. I think it's doing all right. Those are great book recommendations too. I'm a big fan of uh, Elegant Puzzle. That's, uh, that's a very good one. Um, the, the other thing I guess that I could think of is so for an actual new engineering manager or potentially let's think of the IC who might want to step up into that track and they're like, okay, I think I want to take the engineering manager route and, and all the things that that entails. 
Um, what do you think? There's there's a couple questions here, but if someone's looking to step up or level up their game, what would you recommend they focus on first? Like what might be the enduring kind of underpinning principles of being a strong engineering manager? Actually, I'll just leave it there. Let's ask that question first. It depends on how your organization is thinking about engineering managers. And um, there are three kind of areas that I think are, are relevant, which is um, people, process, and projects. And depending on how your organization looks at the role and responsibility of an engineering manager, it might shift a little bit. Um, where we put a lot of focus is on people and process and typically don't have engineering managers lead projects or initiatives. Again, sometimes it's blurry your startup. Uh, whoever has the, the capacity but also capabilities can, like, can champion initiatives, or we call them Batman. So there's always a Batman and Robin. And, um, and that impacts how you would approach kind of like leveling up your career um, because um, it's a career change. Management is now a different focus because you're doing much more process and much more people. If you are aspiring as an individual and you don't have a kind of people management as part of your responsibility yet, it's something you probably hardly can't do, but you can influence it. And you don't need to manage people to coach them and help others to achieve their goals. And that might be just uh, helping another junior developer, not just helping out technically to become a better developer, but also help with facilitation because a big part that is around process is also an umbrella of like facilitation, um, helping with like rituals, uh, taking on things like, well, you know what, I'm just running the daily right now, or um, maybe um, some of the leaders might not be available, or you just like put your hands out like, hey, I would love to run the retro. Or um, there's like a specific, we have like test fests where the team gets together and does like a very intense test of the system to um, prepare for like a release. And then engineers might just be stepping out and saying, hey, I want to coordinate that. So you can take ownership and, uh, and reach into areas where you might have little experience um, to kind of prove yourself and get some more experience on that. And um, that often stands extremely out and also helps you to offload work that, let's say, another engineering manager or a tech lead might be doing um, because you start kind of adapting to that. And um, those are often like the, the biggest moments of growth where you're building out your scope by putting focus on things that you did not have into your responsibility as an individual contributor, but are typically part of um, something that an engineering manager in kind of your organization would do as responsibilities and identifying what those are. Ideally, it's articulated in a career path where you have like a little matrix. It outlines everything that, that would be expected from you and then taking those on proactively. And you can even tie that into your one-on-ones as like, hey, for the next two weeks, we'd love to like personally develop something in this area. What are some of the resources that you can um, help you with or tap into? And uh, also tie that into like your reviews. And then with that, you kind of grow into that role or you can also kind of like just make a call and say, hey, I want to manage people and this is what I want to do. And this is why I think this would be a really fun thing to do. And um, if there's capacity, then I'm at least always open uh, to then say, you know what, 
let's see if you can maybe mentor someone. And that mentorship then turns into uh, a dedicated management where um, I then phase out and say, you know what, um, you have regular one-on-ones, let's just do it like once a month or two months. And you have a dedicated one-on-one with that individual. And that helps build out the confidence, practice the muscles, and then over time kind of transition into a role that then is more applicable. Thank you for this masterclass. First of all, <laughs> like, we'll be distributing this everywhere. That's uh, I mean, yeah, like so well put. It, it feels simple when you say it. I know that it's very hard in practice for, for people to identify these opportunities. I think one piece that I'd pass on to those that want to step up or move into these roles, is just have the courage to ask. Like if you want to move into this, like as Alex just laid out, like say you want to run the retro. Like we like leaders take note of those things. Like we see that we see you. And I mean, I'd love your opinion on this a bit. Maybe we'll keep it short uh, for the sake of time, as I know we're running out here. Um, But like it's especially pertinent in this either hybrid or asynchronous environments where it's difficult. Like you don't see just the in-office culture because back in the day when I used to work at IBM, right, you'd see people working and you could kind of see the people who look like they might have a penchant for people and process because they just sort of naturally would be talking or helping or come to a pair session or do all those classics. But in an asynchronous remote environment, it's, it's harder for a manager to see it. So it's important for individuals to have that courage to step up and ask to sort of take that baton or take that leadership. At least I've perceived, I would, I would love your thoughts on that as brief as they might need to be. There's like a realistic perspective where we're now at a season where like performance reviews are happening. It's the end of the year. We're building up goals. We're setting out our quarterly goals. Right now, we're actually on like uh, org and team levels are building out our OKRs for uh, Q1. Uh, we're kind of like accumulating budgets and we're thinking about like all these amazing things that are absolutely necessary. But reality is like my capacity right now is so shrunk because there's so many topics that are uh, important and they all feel extremely important and, and critical, but reality is they're probably like, there's varying things. Um, what I'm trying to get at is as an individual, the more you can help me, the more you can help yourself and take control into that. Because as you say, I don't have visibility in everything you do on a day to day and I don't need to. Um, but there are ways that you can give that visibility. And um, one of the mantras that we have is build out loud. And um, that just doesn't mean that you create noise in Slack channels and um, be very quirky. It just means that uh, whatever someone is working on, we provide transparency, but also accountability around that. And um, if there are initiatives that you're extremely passionate about, but they might not be around the roadmap, then you have the freedom to take that on given that you can fulfill the rest of the things that you've committed to and uh, and help shaping that and doing that in in a way that is transparent and visible to others. And that might be just like a, a message into like one of the team channels saying, hey guys, I really have this like amazing idea to do an improvement in our code base around like this area. Um, here's a few ideas. If you want to like jump on and help me out with that, I would appreciate or asking for expert help. So like, hey, here's something really interesting. What can we do? Um, but even simple things around like, hey, we just released this amazing feature. This is this is what we worked on. And that was the challenge. Not just like, oh, I do a demo on like how you can click five times and now um, you kind of like saved 
time on doing a certain particular task. What was the challenge? Why was it so hard? And why are you excited about it? And um, and those are much more impactful and provide a little bit of context. And that's all on like individuals. Um, control and influence. And if I don't get that, that means I need to look for it. So that means that on a Sunday afternoon, I will sit down and go for linear tasks and I will look at some of the things that people did, not to try to get like a, a creep on like the code quality, but just like, what did they do? What did they accomplish? And what impact did it have? And um, if you can provide me that proactively, comparatively, I have to dig it out for like 20 people, um, then um, that is just something that is very, very hard for, for someone. Um, but if you provide it, then it becomes very easy. But it also becomes in your control. And the way you tell the story can also shape the light on it. And something that might not seem awesome can be extremely exciting and awesome put in light. I mean, foundationally excellent. You, you mentioned earlier in your, uh, you know, your cloud infrastructure that you have a method that it builds preview links so people can see things before they're coming in. Like this seems like a, a, a formula for this would be maybe take that preview link, actually post it in a relevant Slack channel, but put that context around it as you've described. Like what was the business objective? What were we looking for? How did this impact? And like, oh, by the way, here's the preview link. <laughs> like... Exactly. Like, we have books that do that. And that, that's fantastic. Like, I know what they're working on. I don't need to understand what initiative milestone it's tied to. I can look it up but because it's there. But I don't need to keep that in, in mind. But what I see is like really the outcome and how different people are pulled in around like getting that context. And that has so much more impact and um than anything else. So the more proactive you can be and building things out loud, um, the better is for like everyone that you really touch in terms of um, kind of your professional career. Well, I want to thank you again. Uh, if there's anything you feel like was left unsaid, please feel free if there's something you want to leave uh, to, to our audience of many engineers from CTO down to brand new ICs. Um, now's your chance. <laughs> I think there's like so many topics that we can talk for like ever on, on that. And it's like continuously evolving. Um, as mentioned, everyone is, is on a learning path. And um, I really strongly believe in kind of like the community aspect that we all are kind of continuously learning, trying out new things. And what worked for a team of five might not work for a team of 15. And uh, it's actually predictable, like around 50, 100, it, it changes. And um, the more we can share um, with each other and among each other and learn from each other, um, the more we can uh, contribute to just um, a better for the entire community. So if anyone is up for any discussions, uh, I'm easy to to find. So yeah, let me know. Always happy. Yeah, where, where can they find you? Uh, LinkedIn is like the easiest. Um, you can just find me at Alexandra Gogan. Uh, I'm on GitHub, um, I'm on Twitter, um, AlexG0G. Um, so, um, just search, search my name. You'll find me probably very easy. And, um, my email, alex at joinsherpa.com. If you want to reach out directly, um, always open. Amazing. Thank you so much for being opening and thank you so much for obviously caring about this community. Uh, it's, it's just wonderful to be able to have the time together. So a third, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again, man. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. <laughs> Bye.